Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello, everyone. This week on Around the Coin is our first episode of 2015. And Brian, Faisal, Mike, myself, we discussed what 2015 has in store, briefly recapping the 2014 stories that were in the news, but really try to digest what's going to happen in 2015. What are the trends going on between Facebook payments, Stellar, Ripple, Apple Pay, what that means, what they could be doing in the future. Uh, We discussed the security issues, particularly that of Sony and how that influences consumer and enterprise companies and how that will influence startup companies. We talked about the unbanked, those that don't have bank accounts, don't have access to credit uh, issuing providers and what the future of unbanked is, particularly through Apple and Apple Pay. And we sort of concluded by our thoughts around uh, uh, couponing and the influence of mobile, which was kind of an overarching theme here. So hope you enjoy. As always, if you have any comments or questions, shoot us an email or post in the Quora comments. Uh, We would love to hear from people and get more people involved and try to answer as many questions as we can. Brian Faisal and I, particularly Brian and Faisal, spend a lot of time on Quora answering thousands and thousands of questions focused around technology and payments. So something we're all passionately uh, uh, enthusiastic about is to answer as many questions as possible. So we look forward to another great year and hope you enjoy. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are at our first podcast of 2015, and we are more excited than ever to have completed our first year. Uh, we have about 40, 46 episodes in the bank now. Uh, we did the last two episodes, we're focused on a recap of 2014, all of the topics that we discussed. And this episode will be about forecasting, predicting, talking about the big issues and topics and themes of 2015, things that you might want to think about or learn more about as we progress into the year. And as always, if you have any comments, questions, themes, topics you'd like us to discuss, put them in the show notes on Quora, send us an email. We're easy to get a hold of, but we would love to hear from you and talk about the things that you guys care most about. So Brian Faisal, how are we doing in the new year? Wonderful. Happy New Year. Feeling refreshed, ready to go. Absolutely. It's going to be a great year. Yeah. Last year was incredible, uh, especially for us, you know, personally, the three of us just having completed so many episodes of Around the Coin. I feel like we're really in a good flow, kind of 
conversationally digging into topics. And, um, you know, we've basically covered the bases. I remember when we first started, we said we wanted to talk about each of the topics and sort of dig deep. And then that gives us the freedom to discuss whatever we want. And we've kind of done that, you know. Yeah, about. and the world changed around us. I mean, some of the things we talked about. Yeah, sure. all Apple came Pay to wasn't even a Apple Pay wasn't even a thought when we first started. Well, it was thought in my mind. It was thought it in was your just mind. One of yeah, <laughs> this is one of my fantasies. No, but I mean, look at Bitcoin. Look at the stuff that Faisal was talking about with communications and uh, social networks and payments and all this type of stuff. It's all starting to come to fruition, and uh, and it all happened in 2014. And uh, I think the 2015 time span is going to be the uh, the maturing of that. I think we're going to see an expansion of those ideas. So it, it was great, and this show was right there. You know, uh, covering it. Yeah, sure. And so, I think so. So let me ask you, Brian and Mike, your thoughts on 2015 on Bitcoin and not the price, but Bitcoin in general. It's adaptability, usability, expansion, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'll go first here. Uh, I, there's no doubt that um, when we started 2014, there was question whether Bitcoin would quote unquote last. It was uh, being uh, equated to monopoly money and, you know, uh, some kind of scheme. I, th I think that's long gone. So tw moving into 2015, it's going to mature. It's going to become commonplace. In some people's mind, it might almost become boring. Uh, the speculative period of Bitcoin where it was gyrating up and down radically, I think those days are over. Now, does it mean that Bitcoin is going to stay at one price forever? No. Uh, game theory, you know, laws of supply and demand, all kinds of things are going to play onto Bitcoin. It's going to rise. But if you're using Bitcoin as an investment uh, vehicle, uh, perhaps, you know, uh, it, it'll be uh, something that'll beat inflation. Uh, if you're using Bitcoin as a currency, as a transaction mechanism, it is probably going to be more useful because the gyrations are going to be more normalized. Uh, if you're going to be using the blockchain concept, which some people equate to Bitcoin, I see that as outside of Bitcoin per se. I think that's going to be an explosion of 2015. I think every type of uh, idea that can be implemented within the blockchain, we're going to see innovation and startups building around it. And uh, most of 2014 was, was the investment and seeding of those ideas. A lot of stealth companies. So Bitcoin's going to be around. Uh, we're glad to announce that. In the beginning of last year, we weren't sure, uh, but you know, at least the world wasn't sure about it. Uh, and um, and uh, the blockchain is going to take over, and alternative currencies too. We're going to see a lot of uh, variations mm. of that. Yeah, mm. I would give I would give Bitcoin a hold, though. I think generally cryptocurrency is an exploding concept, and the and the potential for those are huge. But but Bitcoin, I would hold only because I think people still look at it from a $2 coin, or you remember the gold coins that came out? <laughs> yeah. They still look at it as this sort of unique thing. I don't want to spend Bitcoin. I want to hold it. And I'm sort of, rather than look at the price, I look at the qualitative aspect to people's perception of it. And people don't really think of it as a currency in the true sense of the form, where they're not thinking, I want to, I don't, I want to earn it and I want to spend it. It's more this thing I want to understand and hold, which reminds me of the $2 bill, right? People didn't actually use them because they were so unique. And I think Bitcoin's success will be driven on the fact that it's looked at as a true fluid currency as opposed to something people want to hold on to or it's, it's in this weird category. You know, People don't buy and sell crystals, but they have value. And I think Bitcoin mm. is still in that abstract form of it's not quite currency. And I think maybe part of the difficulty is that, at least in the U.S., people have difficulty looking at multiple 
currencies as being equal or being equally used. You know, people think of the USD, the dollar. That's the only thing you buy and sell. And once you start introducing a new language, you could almost say, you know, you have to get the early adopters on board to start using it and buying and selling. But I think Bitcoin's success will be driven on, can they cross the chasm? Can they get into the mainstream or 20, 30% of all transactions? And I'm not, I'm not sure so we'll see that quite yet in 2015, maybe 2016, 17, that'll start to happen. But like you said, Brian, I think the Bitcoin startups that evolve will start to push those and start to change people's perception, just make it easier, right? I want a simple app. I want the blockchain to be very easy for developers to build tools on. So just like Coinbase released their tipping feature, we'll start to see little just changes in perception about how Bitcoin can be used. And once those become successful, I think that's the life or death of Bitcoin. Do you? Th- I have a question for both of you. Do you think um, there are there, well, there's a camp that thinks that if we peg the price of the Bitcoin to the U.S. dollar and fix it and readjust the peg every week or two weeks or three weeks or a month, do you think that would have an impact on Bitcoin trading and Bitcoin usability trans- in, in, in transactions per se? I think it would it would violate the premise of why. Uh, that particular currency was invented. I would say if you're going to do that, you invent an altcoin, and people have. You know, they peg it to the commodity prices of oil or whatever. You know, not such a good thing uh, these days. But um, uh, there's even one, uh, you know, pegged to the most uh, rarest minerals. The the problem is those are artificial. And, uh, you know, the premise of what Bitcoin was about was it was going to be an inflationary uh, inflated currency based upon constrained uh, supply and increasing demand and uh, the ability to fractionalize it down to, um, you know, potentially in infinity uh, if, if adjusted. So I think that's a nice idea, but... You know, this is a struggle between its early roots of being an independent sort of uh, uh, payment system un- unattached to any particular uh, uh, government versus trying to stabilize it artificially. And mm. uh, there's a lot of heated debates about it, though. I, yeah. You know, so I, I'm, uh, I, I'm against it uh, ultimately for Bitcoin. So, Mike, I'll ask you the flip question, which is do you think Bitcoin's usability in the U.S. right now is more from a hobbyist perspective or, you know, true? value addition that it is providing for transactions. Yeah, I think it's definitely in the in the former category. It's still a it's still a hot topic. It's still not quite understood and used in commonplace, right? Other than early technology adopters like you and and Faisal and I, Brian, there's there's not that sort of desire to use it or firm understanding. And I think frankly there's three major things that that work against that. One is the the early regulation forced on Bitcoin, which scares away innovators, technologists, developers who want to come in and build tools. And then there's the enforcement of that regulation, which if that comes, you know, if that comes to fruition, that's really going to impede the growth of Bitcoin on everyday usage. And it's really going to be looked at as a hobbyist perspective. And then frankly, I'm I'm most scared about public perception. Part of the thing we were talking about in the pre-show is just the, the reality that public perception of you know whether it's talking heads like Warren Buffett, who's you know obviously a major financial influencer, and him saying things like "stay away from Bitcoin, it's a mirage." Those sorts of things just it changes public perception. Now people won't have the willingness to try it or adopt it. 
And I think if that doesn't happen, you know, you need guys like that being big advocates and saying it's real, it's easy, it's you know, it's better. Just give it a shot and try it. And once people get in that habit of using it, then it'll become successful. But we're still in the hobbyist stage right now. Yeah, there, there's no doubt it is. Uh, in a, in a hobbyist mode, and uh, you know, mainstream. No, I don't think anybody predicted it to be mainstream for at least a decade. You know, and uh, there's a lot of things that need to be worked out. Coinbase has moved it forward immensely. Without, uh, you could not imagine the Bitcoin world today without a Coinbase in, yeah. in existence. You know, it's funny. It kind of reminds me of uh, how people thought about marketplaces, online marketplaces, yeah. five to ten years ago, where they thought, you know, there's going to be one marketplace. It's going to be the eBay for everything, where people can buy and sell everything from dog hosting to transportation to casual you know meal preparation to healthcare and now you see this very commonly accepted theory that is a reality that is marketplaces break up into vertical marketplaces with very oh, yeah. specific features and, and processes and support teams that cater to those demands right whether you're transport you know on uber transportation it's not going to become the task rabbit for everything and i think bitcoin is still looked at as maybe it's just going to be used for everything but <clears throat> like we talked about in previous episodes i think bitcoin's going to find very specific niches like the remittances market or the coupon yeah. market or whatever they are those are going to be the explosive growth and then they're going to sort of move into other verticals one by one rather than becoming you know, a competitor to the U.S. dollar or something of that sort. Absolutely. Mm. How about you, Faisal? Uh, where do you stand on on all this? I I, I think it's uh, it, it's still a hobbyist thing in the U.S. That's still trying to figure it out. Uh, I think the rest of the world needs it. I think the payment rails and the blockchain, you know, the ledger technology is 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 where the immense power and potential lies. How it will play out, you know. <laughs> It's 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 a little hard to predict. Um, the price volatility is something you know a lot of people are not comfortable with, and uh, it does has its uh, you know sets of challenges. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, uh, Mike would me- mention remittances because if you look at a couple of buzzwords uh, for 2014, they were Bitcoin, <clears throat> money transfer services, you know, using Bitcoin or what have you, um, the reemergence of uh, NFC, uh, EMV, security, and obviously mobile payments was, you know, part of NFC. But, um, and the one word that kept coming again and again was, you know, banking the unbanked. So uh, taking cue from that, what do you think about, let's talk about the unbanked community. Uh, What do you see for 2015 as far as the unbanked are concerned? Wow, this is is a big, big thing because, you know, unbanked, a lot of people define that as being people who are just not fan- financially worthy or are "quote unquote" poor, but um, it's a generational you know, thing now. You know, actually, you know? Uh, in the Economist uh, and and uh, I think a couple of other uh, people actually quoted uh, some certain forums in Hong Kong and in Singapore, where the definition of the unbanked was that, like you said, people who are not credit worthy uh, to get a bank account, and that was incorrect. That's, yeah, yeah. credit worthiness has got nothing to do with getting a bank account. Yeah, this uh, is being an this unbanked. is a generations uh, of change. You know, uh, the the fact that um, you know uh, 
people like Brad King and, and a lot of futurists saw this coming a, a while ago is that the, the relationships with, with your bank and your relationship with your credit and your relationship with your money is dramatically changing. It's, it's actually changing faster than uh, the entire length of history of money just in the last 10 years. So we have a generation that is growing up on smart devices, uh, smartphones and, and, and such, and uh, that's slowly integrating every aspect of their, uh, of their life. So the thing that we consider credit, I mean, the, let's look at the standard credit card. I mean, it, it, it was built around a mailing address and a social security number and, uh, and credit bureau reporting. And that's just almost like saying that uh, people watch all their uh, video content on television stations and the Nielsen rating service is going to tell everybody what everybody's watching. And uh, not to mention that the credit was tied to the institution, which was the bank, which was a credit, a credit giving institution. That's how they make money. That's exactly it. So, so I I see a future where the unbanked uh, really becomes part of this new banking system. Uh, And I see on-demand credit being issued. You know, some people might call it payday loans. Some people might call it other things. But the idea that you look at a particular item that you want to buy and you decide whether you want to use money that you already have, we'll call that debit, or money that you would like to borrow, we'll call that credit. And your relationship with a card, I'm not saying credit cards are going away, the universal credit card, but you're going to see specific sort of on-demand credit, similar to what we saw with Bill Me Later, but a much more sophisticated and mobile-based system where somebody can say, oh, I, I need to get a new transmission. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's gone. Uh, I, I don't want to put it on my Visa card. Boom, credit is issued right there. And it's based upon a lot of different social uh, network signals, uh, online footprint, all of this type of data. And I think the credit reporting agencies are either going to morph or disappear because of that. And that's that extension to that. And one of the reasons why the unbanked are unbanked is because they don't fit well into the old paradigm of how credit reporting worked. Credit reporting was based upon you walking up the steps of credit, you know, you start with mm, a small mm. gas card or a store card, and then maybe you can work your way Building up to getting the score your first up. visa. Exactly, and and those days are pretty much, you know, over for people that are in their uh, late teens and early twenties. They're not going to build their credit that way. So, modern companies are going to find different signaling for credit worthiness, and you know, prior credit will start obviously accumulating, right? Because sooner or later, people are going to have access to it. But the way that we get access to uh, identifying whether somebody is worthy of paying a particular bill back, or if they happen to miss it, that they're interacting with these new collection companies that, you know, we call them collection companies is almost ridiculous. Let's call them uh, money relationship companies. You know, I mean, effectively what they're going to do is redefine how you're going to deal with your debt, redefine how you're going to deal with your money. So I think... All of that's going to change. And when we finally look back, say, 20, 30 years, we're going to say that the whole idea about unbanked uh, versus banked was really a, a, a huge paradigm shift that was related to technology and the changing demographics within banking. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I do think also for unbanking, there's different 
sectors of open banking that kind of get meshed together. One is when people just don't have the infrastructure around them to become banks. You know, if you live in a small town in Africa, then you don't have the ability to obtain a credit card. You don't have the ability to go to a bank. You don't have the online presence of a computer and the infrastructure around you with reliable Wi-Fi. So a lot of the infrastructure around you isn't there. So that's affecting people from a societal standpoint or, or city by city. And then you have people who are just too young, Right. They're just, they don't have the experience. They're, you know, 13, 15 years old. They haven't obtained any credit history to obtain the credit card, but they have the desire to. They have the infrastructure around them. They understand the value. They just haven't gotten there yet. And then there's people who, you know, have, have kind of screwed up. They've, they've gotten to a point where they, they, didn't pay back their credit in time. They don't have the ability to obtain credit. So I think those, th- these different demographics of people often get meshed together and saying these are the problems with the unbanked. But frankly, with the young generation of people coming up, there's going to be a, a Darwinistic uh, understanding of credit where you're only going to get what you need. You know, even from my parents' generation, I remember them saying, you know, you should probably buy your car and have at least two years of payments so you build credit. And there's sort of this arbitrary understanding that the more times I pay my credit card, the higher my credit goes. And there's not a real good understanding. There's not anything comparable to mint.com for your financials of credit, right? I don't know how much does my credit score get affected by paying my car on two-year payments or five-year payments or $300 a month or $500 a month. And how much will this buying a house, you know, I I think the the lack of understanding of credit and how it all works in 2015 and, and beyond will start to become more transparent. And like you said, Brian, companies are going to start to build on top of the understanding to make it easier for people to get an honest credit score and honestly build their credit as opposed to some arbitrary development of their credit. <clears throat> exactly. And the whole thing that we call a credit score today is going to radically change. I mean, there and that would be a, such a great thing, frankly. That, I think that, it's liberating it, it, because basically how much how much credit is one person worth? Where does that number come from? You know, uh, I, I've seen a number of studies where... But it's where, also behavior change, right? So the behavior of, of, of spending money is changing. So the equation that uh, is, is related to it has to change as well. Absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, the, the whole way the payment system is going to be viewing uh, this change is going to be interesting because the mobile device is obviously going to pay uh, the, the center uh, actor in all this. And the Absolutely. idea is who is going to be in control of this and, and would there be control? And it, and, and it meshes mm. with things like Bitcoin, blockchain, uh, NFC, Apple Pay. So, so let, me ask, let me ask you gentlemen another question. So one of the things that's sort of coming up not so much in the U.S., but everywhere in the world, is MFS, Mobile Financial Services. The the telco provider is providing mobile financial services because that's the common denominator. Everyone is holding this, you know, the phone in their hands, and so, they're now right. providing the ability. Like as a classical example, how do you see MFS, uh, you know, sort of uh, taking shape in the U.S., especially um, vis-a-vis comparing it to the banks? Well, I. I don't think the mobile providers are in the same um, uh, level playing field as you see other parts of the world. Apple changed that forever. We can pretty much uh, time this all to the brilliant negotiations Steve Jobs had with Verizon and AT&T, ultimately AT&T being the victor of that communication uh, and negotiation. Basically, they broke this control over the hardware. And the only thing that the uh, mobile provider did have was the SIM card. 
And Apple recently changed that with a universal SIM card within the new iPad Air with uh, wireless, uh, you know, uh, cellular wireless. And that was a major step. Now, Apple's saying, we're not going to do that with phones yet. But essentially, if they wind up doing a universal SIM card, that means the telecom providers have nothing inside that phone any longer. And, and I'm thankful for it because the bloatware that shows up on some of the Android phones is horrific at different parts of the world. I mean, you literally are having half your memory taken up with uh, people who have paid money to get their app on your phone, and you, you almost can't delete it. So the, the telecom provider is going to have a slightly different aspect in the United States versus the rest of the world. ISIS or... Um, is soft pay, whatever they're calling themselves, um, is an opportunity for, for perhaps them changing their narrative and becoming more aware of what Apple Pay has done to try to change this thing. And we, we come back to this because really Apple Pay is a foundation of a banking system in the United States on a mobile device. It's the beginnings of that. And we're going to see person-to-person payments coming from it. And it's going to happen in a radical way that unfortunately is going to shock a lot of people who've already invested in personal person uh, payments mentally and, and financially. Um, we're going to see your interaction with banks change because of that. I mean, I was shopping this holiday season, and every time I used Apple Pay, I got a notice from American Express, who's my, I love using, uh, letting me know that down the street I could have dinner or lunch. And it's, they're really taking advantage of this. And when Beacon technology turns on, that's going to get more localized. But this whole banking relationship, if you really break down what somebody's doing with banking, there's a couple of milestones that take place in people's lives. Let's say um, first car, perhaps financed, first mortgage financed, and maybe ultimately college if you, know, you have children. Uh, that's a, these are the big financial things. <clears throat> and there are other things that are built into it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the differences in the new 2015 moving on world is your interaction to this financial relationship isn't walking into a building with uh, Grecian and Roman uh, you know, uh, architecture uh, and, and a big safe. It's interacting with your phone already knows a whole lot about you and you may, uh, with permission, share that data with a financial service. You know, and as that data becomes more rich, you're going to be giving uh, access uh, to higher and higher uh, uh, credits and loans. So this is kind of where that new paradigm is going to start. We're going to start seeing it today. The beauty is Apple took the reins back into uh, to control of the individual by saying, listen, your private data is your private data, your financial data is your financial data, and we need to rein that in. And that's how it's going to take place in the U.S. But if you look at how it took place in, in, in Africa with M-Pesa, it, it's a radically different sort of environment. Uh, I'm not saying that that's not going to uh, morph into something close to what we see here, but it's going to be their own unique thing. And parts of Europe... You know, the telecom providers are in full control other than on certain Apple products. But even then, they, they really get uh, to have higher demands uh, on, on what um, can be done and what can't be done. But slowly but surely, the popular, popular if, if a device is popular enough and a company is popular enough, that will trump what a telecom provider will try to do. And I'm not painting them as mean or evil. They just have uh, dumbfounded a lot of users in some regions of the world by what they've done with payments and what they've done with banking. 
And yeah. Say that. One of the more interesting statistics that come to light are 53% of millennials don't think their bank is any different from any other bank. Which Wow. That's a huge stat in itself. And it goes on to say <clears throat> 73% are more excited about new financial service offerings from Google, Amazon, Apple, Square, PayPal, etc. than their own bank. And 33% of, of people surveyed here believe soon that they won't need a bank at all. And I think the overall arching trend here is that the traditional understanding of a bank is, you know, you have the big building, you walk in, mm-hmm. you, you get some amount of credit or cash, whatever it is, you walk it's out. Changing. You're, you know, it doesn't, even, it, it doesn't even exist five years from now. And I think the dramatic decrease in the number of physical locations, the increase in mobile is going to be just hammered throughout the statistics around mobile banking. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be, I think, sort of ubiquitously mobile and web. And, well, and I think, much less than online. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that the the giant for change in banking has woken up, uh, which brings me to another question. I want your opinion on is you know Apple Pay was sort of the uh, uh, vindication of the idea that uh, e, you know EMV uh, uh, NFC. security NFC uh, the whole mobile payment ecosystem is is very much alive. Uh, it has actually woken up NFC in the U.S. like unheard of. You know, previously everyone had thought that you know NFC. Ah, never mind, it's dead. Uh, we didn't see NFC in uh, iPhone five, and I think we also covered this in a couple of our shows. Why we didn't sure. see it, uh, and because of the EMV standards that came out in March uh, 2014, then Apple Pay comes out, and now everyone in the payments spaces, you know, how can we get a piece of the NFC pie? Uh, what are your views on that? What, what do you think we will see in 2015 as far as Apple Pay positioned, you know, uh, parallel to NFC and positioned in parallel to the competition? Well, you know, big question. And and uh, we're going to see a, a huge expansion of NF- NFC capabilities within merchants in the United States. It already started uh, pre-holiday. And the growth is coming from small and medium-sized merchants. And most of the researchers following this are just dumbfounded. All they're looking at is the really big numbers and they're saying, well, you know, NFC is costing too much for small merchants. That's hogwash. Uh, Very few merchants are paying for NFC upgrades. Uh, The most that they might have to do is commit to one year with their current provider to get an NFC machine or upgrade. And uh, they're not paying for it. So this rapid expansion uh, is created such a demand that uh, the leading providers, Verifone and Ingenico, are running out of uh, entry-level terminals for this. Uh, towards the end of November, uh, you could not get uh, from the suppliers any NFC terminals for small and medium-sized merchants. They were gone. They were literally not in stock. <clears throat> they... Um, they were used by these small merchants to capture the very first uh, series of Apple Pay t- transactions. And somebody might scratch their head and say, well, why is that so important? Well, these are practical and pragmatic merchants who most have been around for decades. So they know by adopting this particular technology, they're going to secure um, a higher average ticket and perhaps a higher percentage of sales by doing it. And the results are proving that. Uh, immeasurably. I've access to, uh, you know, private data uh, that shows that merchants that have had NFC and Apple Pay acceptance in one store uh, and in another store they don't have it and their equal monthly volume, the store with Apple Pay has a 12 to 15% increase in sales. So, I mean, these merchants instinctively knew that. Yet the the, the naysayers, uh, they're still out there. Uh, instead of <laughs> saying that NFC is not uh, going to happen, they're saying, currency. oh, 
Yeah, yeah, they're saying the, the big companies aren't doing it yet. Well, that's just a political thing. It's not a uh, a, a practical thing. So NFC uh, is creating what I call an, uh, a retail internet of payments. So is that controlled and owned by Apple? No. This is the largest opportunity for innovation that we've ever seen in retail payments. Once we know that every um, merchant of any means has an NFC system, we now can innovate around that and create new devices and new ways to communicate with that NFC payment uh, system. It doesn't always have to be just a phone. It doesn't have to be a watch. It can be other things. And I'm telegraphing the future here, but in 2015, we're going to be seeing these things. A lot of the companies are in stealth mode. But you'd be shocked in how we're going to interact with that network. Uh, and, and to me, it's finally moving the credit card system yeah. into the internet age. The other aspect that blew my mind and gets back to banking is I witnessed the, the very first um, Apple Pay-based ATM transaction. And you talk about somebody not walking into a bank. These new modern ATM machines can be um, you know, pretty much built anywhere and highly secured. And the, the modern ATM machine is going to allow somebody with a phone literally to go up there press their thumb, and within seconds, get money out of it. It's, Brilliant. It was so fast. I saw, and it's secure, it's reliable. I saw a transaction take place in 14 seconds because basically the app itself uh, sent out the information on how much money you wanted. You didn't even have to touch the machine. It literally <laughs> was like this vending machine. And that goes on to another thing. We're going to see the rise of new forms of vending because of NFC. And this is another element that a lot of tech writers aren't getting. The largest NFC merchant in the United States, most people don't know who it is. It's Coca-Cola Company. They have over 250,000 NFC vending machines in the United States. Wow. And uh, they're already starting to get amazing, amazing uh, amount of use, particularly uh, in New York, particularly around uh, public airports and, and train stations. Uh, and, and this is growing uh, phenomenally. And I think we're going to see vending uh, coming into what we call a vending machine today uh, versus what in these new vending systems are going to be like is going to be phenomenal. I will give you one big thing with Amazon concerning this. I think Amazon may very well be seeing these pieces fall into place. And uh, Amazon uh, just put out a report about the holiday shopping season. And the Amazon uh, Now service, um, uh, Prime Now service, uh, the last order of the year, uh, shopping year for Christmas Eve, uh, was placed on like uh, 10, 20 p.m. And the item was uh, delivered at 11.05 p.m. the same day on Christmas Eve. And uh, they're going to be closing that gap. So the vending machine and the on-demand economy is the manifestation of the internet expressed in the real world. And uh, the payment vehicles that we have, like Apple Pay, are going to really grease those rails. You're going to be walking by these modern vending machines, maybe built into sides of, um, of other stores. And you're going to see something like a, looks pretty much like an electronic billboard that you like. And it won't be you're seeing the physical item necessarily. And you press but, a button and it pops up. Brian, this, this is this is new for you. You know, Mike, who's lived in Singapore, would probably tell you that these things <laughs> been around forever. Back there, uh, oh, ten yeah. years ago. Yeah. Yeah, but it so was NFC. See, that, that's the thing about this stuff is it, it all this technology, uh, especially it's Apple. It's not new the, to the world. It's new to the U.S. It's new to the U.S. and it's the way it's marketed. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the rest of the world is scratching their head saying, oh, you guys are all excited because you have NFC? Yeah, we, we yeah, did but that I think, in Japan. I think we can say the same thing about the, 
EMV, which will be yes. a standard yeah. <laughs> that the world is using for a long, long time. It's There's like no America disco- it's like America discovering condoms. Hey, you know, <laughs> we got uh, condoms for payments yeah. now. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I do think like the major difference here is though that Apple Pay is something that hadn't been in existence before, and I think mm-hmm. the the ease of use of Apple Pay catalyst by the fact that there's just such a massive, massive weight of banks in the U.S. Uh, Kirsten Lemkaw is the chief marketing officer at J.P. Morgan Chase. And mm. in this article I read, she discussed the aggressive competition to get onto the Apple Pay platform, essentially oh, yeah. making the analogy to the hibernating bears that come out of hibernation and they're, they're angry and they're hungry. And she said, quote, we wanted to have our first Creative. We wanted to be the first creative about Apple Pay, launched on the mobile app, on our website, and in the 5,600 branches on our ATMs and on our New York Times Square sign. And we were up in that overnight. So literally, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase, one of the largest banks, at least in the West Coast, the U.S., is 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 110% behind Apple Pay. And you could see the aggressive competition from Bank of America, American Express, Capital One, Chase Fargo. City. All of these are advertisers on the Apple Pay platform, essentially admitting the growth in mobile. And with Apple Pay, I think it's just a massive change that's, that already happened and is going to continue to explode. But I take a step back and look at like what Apple Pay does from a business standpoint or a business model standpoint. Who does it threaten? Who does it promote? And one of the major influences that Apple Pay is the fingerprint scanner and essentially the yeah. minimization of fraud on your mobile device, which if can you compare it to a credit card, which if you have the credit card number, you can use the credit card anywhere. You can use it online, you could use it in person, at least in the US for most merchants. All you need is the number. And to think that your number has no tie to you personally. There's no retina, or fingerprint scan, none of that. That's why you have such high rates. That's why the percentage of merchant fees are 2 to 3%. So I just wonder, going forward, 2015 and beyond, once you start to reduce fraud to the floor, what new business models become possible? Now, essentially, what's the cost? Right? Why, why do merchants continue to have to pay, essentially passing that cost on to the consumer? Why do we need to pay 2 to 3%? You know, if, if fraud goes to the floor, What's the cost here? And so I think well, there might be new companies. Well, it's not just fraud, though. That's the whole thing. If it's there's, debit, sure, there's, it's, there's, it's there's, not, there's not just fraud, but fraud is a major the whole, cost The whole there. thing of interchange is a huge industry. You know, you can't oh, just yeah. make it go to zero. I mean, that, you know, a, a bank is issuing you a card or in 2015, Well, they're I issuing guess the, you a line of credit, right? Because, yeah. again, if it's a credit card, we have to remember the fact that somebody's got to collect on that bad debt. But also remember, uh, If it's Ryan, a debit you're, card, you're, it's a different thing. You're paying you know? the same cost of a credit card, whether you're using cash or debit or credit. Credit. You know, oh, you're yeah. paying the same cost. It's a hidden tax on everything we it's buy. It's a hidden tax. So, I, I mean, once we start to reduce that, then everything becomes cheaper. And I think that's. Well, yeah. I, I think that's what Apple Apple really did was so brilliant with their negotiation. Is they didn't go in there and say, hi, we're Apple. We want a piece of the pie. Uh, mm-hmm. We want uh, 15 basis points or whatever it winds up being. They said, hold it. We've done the, the research for you. If Apple Pay is adopted by 5% of your cardholders, you will eliminate this many billions of dollars in losses through chargebacks, through fraud. I mean, there's many elements we don't 
average person doesn't know Apple Pay solves chargeback, saying, I was never there. Well, hold on. No, we have your GPS yeah, right? data. It's we absolutely brilliant. You know everywhere they were. You know that they're there. And that data is going to be shared with the card issuing banks in the future. It's not official today, but that was the premise. And so when you go back to these banks and say, we want to take a small percentage for saving you uh, this money, Apple did a, a great calculation. They said, okay, let's, I'll, I'll use imaginary numbers here. Let's just say their losses from, uh, 5% of their losses uh, from fraud and a lot of different fraud categories are lumped into this. So the number, let's say $20 million. $20 million. Let's say it's relatively low. Uh, Apple is only asking for $5 million to be a part of it. That's what the ratio was like. They're only asking for a small percentage of what they're actually saving because of their um, fraud screening capability. So that was a no-brainer for the banks. I mean, that was what really woke them up. And that's what startup companies couldn't fathom. They didn't understand the art of negotiation. They didn't understand the art of working with people. And Apple did. They said, you know, we don't have to muscle. They could have muscled a few of these banks. Uh, and it Probably would have worked more or less, but to really jazz them up uh, was a combination of their seductive technology, uh, incredible uh, power uh, to convert the minds of most merchants, obviously working much better in small and medium-sized merchants, and their ability to share uh, the pie and work with everybody. They're not plus they're the, plus the fact the they can they can immediately launch on their own platform and have huge adoption. You know, I think the difficult part for any startup is that you have to obtain users. Apple already has you as a user of when course. they sell your phone. So. Of course. But, but you know, in, 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 in the early version of uh, what Apple Pay could have been with a startup, uh, let's say one particular startup company had two banks, two of the largest issuing banks behind them. And instead of trying to build bridges, they were playing the, dis the, the disruption card. And they were buying into that. They were insular, they were arrogant, they didn't answer the phone, and they didn't negotiate. And that is going to be the testament that's on the tombstone at some future date, mm. you know, 20, 30 years. I'm not saying the company's going out of business per se because of that, but it's going to be one of those lists of the things that they didn't do, which they were told they should be doing, and they ignored it. Uh, Apple, on the other hand, were... were they didn't approach us with full knowledge. They researched. They said, let's look at this ecosystem. Do we really want to disrupt banks? Do we want to get into the ugly side of issuing credit and collecting from somebody's grandma? Do they really want to do that? No, they said no. Then we need banks, okay? Uh, do they want to do this? Do they want to go and sign up merchant accounts? No, because that requires a physical sales force. It always will forever into, inf uh, into infinity. Uh, you, it will never be 100% self-service. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of startup companies didn't see it that way. They said, oh, this do startups uh, self-service. It works like Google. Uh, long story short is Apple found a way to plug into the ecosystem, energize it with technology, energize it with new thinking, and the whole harbor lifted the boats, F every boat. Faisal, do you think that they're going to have an easy transition abroad? Apple Pay and the relationships uh, hard to say. Very difficult to say uh, because I always look at Apple as a premium product. Uh, the, the market abroad is a very price-sensitive market. If you look at the largest markets, India, China, you know, Turkey, Malaysia, Nigeria, etc., Pakistan even, um, very price-sensitive. Android has a very large footing over here. So how do the existing mobile financial services that do provide... You know, work on their on their telephone network, uh, and how does the Android come into play is yet to be seen. I don't think so. Apple will be able to take uh, a major chunk in these places, but I do have a 
I, I do have a slight uh, uh, tangential question of both of you is, we all know, you know, the Apple, when we talk about Apple Pay, we sort of invariably mention Square or invariably mention PayPal as the competition. Uh, and we know that last year eBay announced that eBay and PayPal are splitting up and so forth. So we will expect more uh, elbow room maneuvering, et cetera, from uh, PayPal. But there's one player that has been sort of subdued. Uh, it's beneath the noise line that we don't talk about much, and that is Alipay. Alibaba oh, yeah. had one of the Alibaba had one of the largest U.S. history. How do you think Alibaba is going to be playing out the U.S. Uh, payment fabric and and, and and entering the ecosystem? We don't talk much about that, so I'd like to hear your perspective on 2015 and uh, Alibaba. I think it's going to be a immense, immense opportunity for uh, uh, elements of Alipay to come into the United States. There's no doubt about that. We might be surprised on the mechanisms because, you know, Alipay is not so much a technology. See, the thing about Apple Pay is it's not a, a payment system. It's a technology transport. It's a communication system, primarily NFC um, or or uh, obviously within an app. Uh, you're talking about an API uh, that's doubled down with uh, Touch ID biometric security. And that model can be anywhere in the world. Getting back to the uh, your part of the world, for example, it's not going to be Apple Pay. It's going to be biometrically controlled NFC on an Android device, Apple Pay rising that boat in parts of other uh, parts of the world. And of course, Apple Pay is going to uh, capture some of the premium market there, but it's not going to overtake the world. So going to buy an Apple product just for Apple Pay. But getting back to Ali, uh, you know, the opportunity is amazing. I mean, we're talking about a situation where um, they can bring a communications platform, a payments platform, and perhaps a marketplace uh, into the United An States. An agnostic payments platform. Exactly. Yes, yes. And and when you look at the way the borders of the world is breaking down, and I've purchased a lot of stuff in China through Alibaba. I mean, uh, people who I could have never have had any communication with. I would have to use the old request for quote environment. I mean, I'm old enough to remember what that was like. It wasn't fun. It was a fax machine. You had to get a letter of credit and it was just so backwards to get anything done in China. Uh, now I can get a, a uh, you know, a, a quick run of uh, of a prototype. Uh, I'm doing a lot of prototyping with uh, some of the startups I'm working with and uh, we can put out, you know, the designs and uh, Alibaba 20 seconds later, get 30 or 40 people uh, doing it and pay through the platform and, and they're here in two weeks. It's phenomenal. And, and so I'm going to see that extension here in the United States. But as a person-to-person -person payment vehicle, as a business payment vehicle, uh, some challenges. You know, uh, it, it mostly is how is it going to manifest? Is it going to be an app? Is it going to be a platform? Is it going to be... Uh, working within Apple Pay, for example, will it be an option? Because mm -hmm. you know, the thing. Yeah, about let's not forget. Let's not forget. Alibaba is predominantly an Amazon, basically, uh, before it is a PayPal. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly, exactly. But but financially in the United States, I'm I'm seeing both of those aspects manifesting as a first step. I mean, just being able to buy goods through that Amazon uh, type platform directly from manufacturers uh, at prices that people are. You know, when when whenever I find somebody has discovered that particular site, 
their mind is blown on how much mm-hmm. that they can buy. I mean, just I had a friend that uh, ran a, uh, or a Christmas uh, store. It only opened about uh, two months out of the year. And he was buying through a lot of different uh, local vendors and paying the various prices. About two years ago, he discovered Alley, And he went crazy. He goes, what I would buy um, you know, a box for, I can get three pallets for directly from China. And it completely changed his business. Uh, he, he is profitable. Uh, in those two months out of the year, he's making what most people are making out of two years in their small business. And he's moving a tremendous amount of stuff out of China. And he's developed uh, 25, 30 different relationships directly with the factories that are supplying you know, the Walmarts of the world and the Targets of the world. And these companies are very wise. So that's going to be the conduit in the United States. And that's the, 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 the prospect once you're on that payment platform. So you're saying you're saying uh, commerce first before payments, uh, yeah. Mike. I, I, Mike, I'd be here to, interested to hear your yeah. view. I think I, from researching Alipay, one of the most starking or, or surprising understandings I have of them now is that they essentially are everything, and it's hard to even come to grips with that. But if you look at Alipay versus PayPal or Alipay versus Square or Alipay versus Amazon, they they sort of do everything. I mean, they transfer money from. Alipay, they do peer-to-peer payments. They do essentially banking with check balances. You can yeah. pay utility bills. You can pay credit cards. You can, I mean, you could use them to pay for products. They have integrations. Yeah, seven hundred and fifty million active users. Yeah, yeah. But I, I look that's at, like PayPal and Square combined <laughs> together it, it, and then it, multiplied it, by incredible. two. That's almost Apple. Uh, Am, that's that's Amazon. And uh, and uh, eBay. I mean, here's, here's a statistic for you. So the number of Chinese citizens using the mobile internet reached 500 million, which is 81% of the internet user population. Wow. So they, I mean, these guys are just, and it's hard to even come to grips with them, I think, in the U.S. because they're just not in headlines. We don't use them. We don't have an active product well, to digest. We and we will. <laughs> we, we certainly will. One of the more interesting statistics as well is that on in November 2014, they really, Alipay released a, a study of the past 10 years of their growth in numbers. And Alipay broke the global record with mobile tr- payment transactions with a volume of $197 billion. So wow. they, they, I mean, they're just, they're just beyond massive. And the question is, how does it impact other companies? How does it grow to a, a worldwide scale? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, that's something I am questionable about, whether the sort of the Chinese brand can grow beyond or essentially if them sticking in China is their bread and butter forever, which is perfectly fine. I mean, that's just such a huge market that they don't necessarily need us. But, you know, I'm going to blow blow somebody's mind here because uh, it's a bit of a rumor, but I think it's got a great foundation. Once mm-hmm. eBay and, and we'll get to eBay PayPal here, too. Once eBay and PayPal separate. Uh, eBay uh, is going to be an acquisition target, and I believe Alibaba may be the acquirer. If, in fact, that happens in the United States, this is going to be such a massive change and shift. Uh, you're essentially rebuilding eBay PayPal, but using the Alipay uh, platform. And it allows a conduit for the, you know, the Chinese version or the Asian version of uh, Ali into the United States with the eBay uh, environment. So that, I think, is something that could take place in 2015. Uh, it might happen very rapidly. The company certainly has a cash to buy uh, maybe half a dozen <laughs> eBays after they are in a public market. And uh, it would be much easier once uh, 
they are public uh, to do a leverage. This, I, I don't remember the statistic on it, but isn't it something of uh, Yahoo's major revenue channels from a part owner in Alibaba? It is. Well, uh, that will well, go away eventually because Yahoo, Yahoo has to... Yahoo AOL and Yahoo is going to be yeah. a merger. There's no doubt. And then PayPal is, uh, I'm not counting them out at all. I think PayPal is going to become more of a credit and payment um, brand like Visa and MasterCard and less uh, of a uh, competitor uh, within, say, person-to-person and merchant accounts. I mean, what they're doing right now is they're on a lot of platforms. Uh, they have uh, essentially negotiated with all the major processors and banks, uh, mm. ISOs, to let uh, PayPal become a uh, a fifth way, if you will, uh, uh, of yeah. paying. Faisal, let me ask you that. What do you think? What do you think PayPal's biggest or top two, three biggest assets are? Is it the technology they've built under the hood? Is it the partnerships they have with international banks? Is it the the user base they've the consumer user base they have, or is it the brand they have? I mean, what do you I think? think it's, I, I think clearly the brand. I mean, if you ask yeah. someone, uh, you know, what's the most famous? P2P payment solution, PayPal. Everyone, mm-hmm. Could be Venmo, could be Starbucks, but no one says that. Everyone says PayPal, the brand. Whatever they use under the hood, you know, as far as technology, et cetera, uh, really doesn't matter. But I have very two quick questions for you because we have about 10 minutes left. Uh, first, your two-minute opinion on Facebook and payments. Wow. Uh, I think it's happening in 2015. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I think uh, when you see that uh, some of the old PayPal team is now joining um, uh, uh, everybody over at uh, pay, uh, at Facebook. Messenger, yeah. Uh, yeah, Messenger. Well, yeah, it's just all communication. Nothing to do with payments. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think you're going to start seeing a lot more exodus over there. I, I think you're going to see some relatively famous individuals and in payments uh, perhaps joining over there. Uh, I believe that that's going to be the, the, the magnet. Uh, that's... That's going to be a big story in 2015. Uh, I don't want to be Nostradamus here, but I think we're looking mid, uh, mid-year mid where we'll start getting some real uh, meat of how this will work. Now, the question is, will it be in the U.S. or will it be outside the world? Because this is going to be an international platform ultimately. Mm. And the question mm. is where it starts. I think just for political reasons, it will be the U.S., but there's some of my I colleagues agree. debating me in other parts of the world. Mike, what do you think? Uh, I would say I'd look at the existing payments platform and I'd look at the competition and the sort of chess match from a macro standpoint of where it could go. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and sort of the opportunities, right, both domestically, abroad, and then predicting, you know, if Alipay, if, if eBay and PayPal split up and Alipay buys eBay and what that means for Facebook, right? That's sort of the, the difficult dynamic that Facebook's trying to play into. But I think they've committed to P2P payments. I think their existing payment platform is solid. Uh, their move to hire the ex-PayPal executive, David Marcus, is a, is a very indicative move of their move into P2P payments. But mm-hmm. I also think like Facebook has such an international appeal and user base that it becomes a really obvious play that Facebook's biggest move here is to make international P2P payments, which really yeah. doesn't exist, so, so right? Second question. Will they, will they innovate and bring out their own product or will they partner up with the existing players? I think innovate. I, I think there's no doubt uh, with uh, getting David uh, Marcus there that they're going to be building from the ground up. They have the money, they have the brains and talent, 
and they have the wherewithal. And I, I couldn't imagine them wanting to do it any other way. And, 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 and Faisal, I want to get your answers on this too, but you did incredible work tracking their um, money transmitter licensing. And that tells me that this has been a long, uh, drawn-out um, process that has uh, a method to its madness. And they had done testing with uh, Facebook credits and all these other types of vehicles. And I think they've you know, bitten the apple of payments and they're <laughs> maybe <laughs> uh, and I can tell you from my contacts, the payment system is ready. Uh, they already are experimenting with it. We also saw some screens that were leaked a couple yeah. of months yeah. ago. But yeah. the payment system is ready, essentially. Uh, they have the ability to take partners, they have the ability to do it themselves, they have the ability to take uh, uh, online, you know, open their online stores and Facebook pages and, and have uh, payments natively available for them. The wallet is ready. The interoperability between multiple players in the EU, entire EU, That's and awesome. the US and Canada is ready. That is powerful. Uh, so uh, Australia, New Zealand is ready. Uh, you know they already have that stuff. But I so don't know. I don't know. But, but these things have been ready for a while. I don't know how they're going to package it and bring it out. Uh, what that methodology would me, be. Let me ask you this, Faisal. So I think the unique part about Facebook and where they're playing their their cards, rightfully so, is the fact that they're the only place in the world where you have true, the only true identity. So, yeah. validation. I, 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 I say this: they're the only billion-dollar bank, the billion people bank. <laughs> but they're they're not. Yeah. You know, the, the, Facebook is not just some company with a bunch of users. No. They no, have the no. they they're the only company in the world. The reason why they're successful is it's really you. It's really Faisal, Brian, me. It's really that person on there. So do you have the identity you, verification? You know how, unlike you know how anywhere I, else. So I I sort of have a very weird way of judging companies. Facebook, Twitter. LinkedIn, and in some manner, Google+. These are the authentication, you know, preferred authenticated sign-ins now for websites. You know, it's, it's either usually use your Facebook account or use your Twitter account. So, you know, Twitter and Facebook are right up there. LinkedIn, you know, sort of comes into play, and then sometimes Google+. So I think Facebook is huge. They have a huge ecosystem. They have many partners. I think this... I just think that they're seriously considering how to package it correctly so that they do not make it. They'll have one shot at this thing, one shot, and they cannot afford to do that. So how do you see it with uh, remittances? I mean, being an international platform, could this be uh, the ultimate uh, platform for this? Yes, where do they they put walls around it, you know? No, so my, my views on remittances have sort of changed in the last six months. Very rare thing, but it has. (laughs) <laughs> um, I feel I know I, I'll admit it. You know, when when things are changing, you have to sort of accept them. Uh, Adapt, and I think one yeah. of the, the one of the things that I'm looking at is is I don't see remit remittance is just a type. I want to stress it's just a type of a money transfer. Sure. Uh, Would you call uh, it so an I, intention? No, uh, uh, money type. I mean, the remittance is actually what, what what's called uh, home maintenance. It's money for home maintenance. That's sent yeah. by a worker in a, in a diaspora, a diaspora working in your country, sending money back home. But, but, but you're already on Facebook, right? You're, you right. This person's yeah, yeah, yeah. on Facebook. They're sending it to a family. It just it's so, beautiful so for that. My my, my thing is, uh, uh, you know, all payments are P two P. That's fine. But sure. I think the one sector that has just simply has had is is engine turned off and now is getting turned on is going to be the small value transfer. Being able to transmit yeah. $4, $6, $8, $10, 
smoothly, instantly, economically, um, you know, for a few cents all across the world. And I think that's going to be just huge, uh, maybe a two, maybe $300 billion industry eventually, maybe more even, who knows. Now, question, uh, Faisal. We talked about the power of Apple and all of, all of its users. Let's talk about the power of Facebook politically to make this happen. Because what we're talking about is moving through barriers that were otherwise almost impossible to surmount, especially for small uh, value transactions. You, do you I see them having I, that power to do it? Now I'm, not, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think either Facebook will itself implement a Ripple-like technology, maybe Stellar or something like that, or maybe Ripple is already talking to Facebook and it, it is maybe you know, super secret and they don't want anyone else to know. Uh, but once they do that, then the ability to settle and send money across the world, be it pennies or millions of dollars, will be instant. Uh, and I think uh, uh, Facebook is going to own the payment platforms and the payment market makers and all the countries that it works with. Wow! So I think, so I, yeah. I, I think, I think that's a huge thing, and I think they they would be looking at something like this. Is that 2015? Do you think by the no, by no, this time no, no, next no. year Probably, we'd be saying this? No, no. Okay. no what do you think we'll see from them uh, by by uh, 2015? What you what know, will I, happen? I, I have such a hard time sort of getting my my. My reading on that, I Give don't know. <laughs> I, I really have a hard time because these guys, I, I keep going, going back to Zuckerberg's statement, you know, we'll do it right and we'll do it in our own time, you know. But could, could uh, they he, wait a year, though? He's not, with, he's not, with Ali, yeah, yeah. With, you know, because there is some competitive force. Let me ask you this, Faisal. Do you think the uh, influence from Adam, you know, Adam, the CEO of Quora, having built a large part of Facebook, run their engineering team. Is Facebook thinking about Quora in any sense? Or if not, what do you think Quora's plan in 2015 for payments is? I don't think so. Quora is going to be going into payments. I think Quora is going to be going into how, how the hell do we make money, not the we Monetization, raise. okay. <laughs> yeah. Making monetization payments, is, earning payments. Monetization is going to be a big thing. I don't know because, you know, we've, we've sort of hacked our brains. Is it going to be tipping? Is it going to be micropayments? Is it going to be something like uh, the GLG group, which says, you know, pay someone $600 and they'll answer a question for you because they're the subject matter expert. Is it going to be sharing of revenue from all the ads? I don't know. Uh, I guess it's everyone's waiting for it. Uh, we'll probably find out in a couple of weeks. Last question from both of you. One of the biggest things that was uh, happening in 2014 uh, and even very recently was security. Your thoughts on security for 2015, uh, especially keeping into mind the EMV, uh, yeah. the EMV co-standards, tokenization. Yeah, we, in the United States, we in the United States will be adopting what the worst of the world has been. Uh, mandated, uh, I think, uh, originally by rule, but I think ultimately by government force. I think we're going to see some government legislation that will force merchants to uh, do a great deal in encrypting. And this is going to come to the Congress and New Senate uh, as we enter the new year. There's definitely the political motivation to do that. So security is going to be in the utmost uh, uh, forefront of everybody's mind. The Sony hack uh, that... Um, uh, you know, concerning a, a movie, really just brings to the forefront. Uh, and Mike was talking about his parents and friends and family, really who normally not talk about security, wanting to have that subject during the holidays. Myself also, I probably don't. Uh, I haven't had a conversation with anybody in my family hasn't brought up the Sony uh, 
scenario and what it means politically and 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 things of that nature. So, literally, a, a small country that has very limited internet access try to take down, uh, you know, the internet in some ways. Uh, you know, use the internet to try to take allegedly. So. <laughs> Allegedly, I don't know what you know, but the the bottom line is it it brings this uh, meme to the forefront, and I think the average consumer, you had again, Apple was right in the forefront of this with uh, locking down by buying Authentic when nobody wanted that company to acquire the best uh, press to scan rather than rub the scan or move your finger over a scanner type of technology for uh, biometrics is brilliant. There's not going to be another company that will have that technology for at least 12 years. Uh, the first patent will start expiring about 12 years from now. So it gives them a, a great runway. The other thing is privacy. Uh, and again, this is another Apple story, uh, which was uh, telegraphed into the future because we're going to see that a whole lot. Consumers are going to start clawing back on their uh, right to privacy. And those things that we were giving up freely to use free services and platforms, we're going to start uh, selectively either willing to pay to have it private, maybe Facebook and Google say, okay. I'll use Gmail, but I want you to have less access to my um, information. I'll pay you X to do that. And I believe that we'll start seeing the remnants of that coming. And certainly within financial transactions, not that people are hiding anything. They just want to regain that sense of control. Uh, and uh, and that's going to be a big part of it. AMV, that's going to – listen, if – if it comes with the EMV chip and you try to swipe it at a merchant and a merchant says, can't do it, you got to dip the card into the EMV reader, you have no choice. What that's going to mean from a, from a time spec, uh, spectrum is you're adding uh, about 75 to 150 times more uh, uh, time into that transaction. A swipe is so much faster than an EMV alignment because the card can only go in one way in current machines, not two different ways. And then you have to make sure that it's registered, which takes a lot longer than a swipe, sometimes three seconds on some of these devices, even the more advanced devices. You got to wait for a beep or a visual cue because if you take that card out, you have to wait, cycle, and do it again. It's a lot of different changes of behavior. When I walk up with my iPhone and just hold my NFC over it, there's going to be a dramatic dichotomy about what path of security do you want to be on. So security is going to be a big, big issue when it comes to payments. Yeah, I think uh, I would look at a few just resulting uh, influences that happen here. A couple that come to mind are the Black Hat Conference and DEF CON, two largest hacker conferences in the world, uh, are going to explode. Like I just wondering <laughs> yeah. what the what those will be like. So March twenty fourth is the the next Black Hat Conference hosted in Asia and Singapore. I mean that would be just a, a stunning conference to be at and just see the the change there. I think a couple of the other things that happen with Sony is there's good and bad. I don't look at it as a a good or bad situation with Sony, particularly mm -hmm. being that the largest enterprise hack in history. Sony does represent a company based in just north of North Korea and Japan, right? And Sony Pictures, that was hacked, sure, but the company is based in Japan, so their decisions are going to come from that headquarters. <clears throat> and I think the unfortunate side of Sony being hacked, of course, is the Sony-specific cases, but also the 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 companies and the organizations like the U.S. government who are considering 
putting more information online and disclosing more information, you know, public health records, the reason why there's not a good public health database or system to go to one hospital in the next in the US, or frankly, anywhere in the world is the risk of being hacked. And I think that's going to continue to remain offline, continue to remain stored in each specific hospital, which is probably a good thing. If you look at the risk associated with putting it in one centralized database in the cloud, if you will. But also I would look at the, 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 the clues here. Um, an interesting interesting thing that happened on Christmas Eve was the NSA released the past 10 years. I don't know if you you guys both saw this, but yeah. the NSA, re- NSA released under the Freedom of Information Act yeah, 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 the, yeah, yeah, yeah. a decade's worth that. of accruing quarterly reports, which I found to be really interesting in diving in there and in, in sort of what it represents of their own hacking. And I think if you look at take a look at the whole broad spectrum, including Edward Snowden and all of his actions, the, I think everyone's slowing down a little bit. Right with Sony and all the other hacks that that have gone around, I think companies now are putting on the brakes a little bit. They're doubling down the security teams. Individual consumers, my parents particularly, start using Dashlane instead of one uh, Google Doc with all their passwords in it. So I I would be I'm big bold on Dashlane one password. Things that for the consumer make them more secure, things for the companies that make them more secure, individual consulting companies, beefing up security teams. So I think that's going to be the emphasis in 2015 um, in preventing more, obviously, hacks like this. So it could be a good thing, you know. Essentially, you want to you want to have a little bomb to prevent a big nuclear bomb, and Sony's hack could prevent other uh, subsequent attacks in the future. What do you think, Faisal? I mean, from your part of the world, your perspective. Uh, not affected. <laughs> how so? Why do you say that? Wow. Uh, I mean, how are we affected? I mean, the worst thing that could happen is, you know, my son's uh, limited debit card on the PSN network would get hacked <laughs> and that's about it. But uh, nothing otherwise. I mean, it was not even a news issue in this part of the world. What, you know? what about what about um, Asia specific, Pakistan, Middle East? Like, are there, are there companies <laughs> there that <laughs> grow <laughs> the risk of being attacked? You know, we, Entertainment we, we companies have, or anything? Okay, so I'll, I'll put it even more bluntly for you. We have issues with basic dem- democratic rights, basic rights as citizens versus, you know, things like privacy and how, you know, I'll, I'll take the basic things, the basic necessities of life first before we even look at things like, you know, well, how is my privacy being handled? I mean, obviously, we have financial institutions to have our Visa, MasterCard, and that's about it. Most of the commerce that is being done or most of the information trading that is happening is literally happening with the U.S. companies. I mean, Google, Yahoo, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. So, uh, that's what I'd be worried about. And if my, uh, you know, information gets hacked over there, you know, yeah, that that's something serious for me. Locally speaking, hardly anything. Hmm. Well, you, you know, think there's an attitude of- change there. Do you think people are le- less reluctant to use or more reluctant to use uh, U.S.-based companies? I mean, that's one of the biggest criticisms of the Edward Snowden yeah, disclosure of documents. Is people realize companies realize that Amazon is has a back door and Facebook and Google. So now major enterprise companies are uh, willing to use you know, them. So that's all. That'll always remain. But I think that's a very small, a very small minority that sort of subscribes to that belief, or if it's even true or not. Uh, the majority of the people just want to get their work done. You know, so if, if someone's snooping in Google, there's not, not much I can do about it. You know, get in line. Um, uh, so, so yeah. you know, all, all, all that, uh, you know, it, it, it's a conscientious choice you make. You know, hey, listen, I'm going to be interacting with an American company. The privacy laws are not as good as, let's say, Europe uh, or not as stringent as uh, as 
you know, they are in Europe or even my country for that matter. Um, and, and, and you say, okay, fine, you know, I'll deal with it. I'll, 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 I'll go with the flow. Well, you know, speaking of uh, hacks and people giving out identity, I, I'll give one prediction. I think we'll see the first uh, first time in 2015, and it's, again, related to Apple and, and, and security. I think we'll see for the first time in United States history a driver's license uh, covered inside the secured enclave of an Apple device. Uh, it may be the very tail end of the year, but I think we're going to see the first time that the wallet will literally become your phone. And that was the last vestige. Uh, whether or not the other states jump aboard very much like the banks did, that's another question. I believe I agree. that it may as move long, very quickly. As long, as long as it doesn't go to a central database, I think the American consumer would be okay with that. The beauty of this system, and, and uh, Apple, I can tell you, is working on defining the standards with state governments and, and uh, federal government, is that the data is encrypted within a uh, secured enclave type environment and, and similar to a secure element, but uh, it's where the touch ID is. And nobody has external access to it. It literally... Just presents it under NFC again uh, to uh, to uh, anybody who needs to verify an official document. So this is going to be an interesting time. Uh, it's worrisome for some people, uh, you know, with driverless cars and uh, NFC licenses and NFC payments. The world's going to change. We're going to see the first Google car, uh, you know, taking the roads of California, uh, probably second quarter of the uh, 2015. You, know, you just get in the car and 25 miles uh, an hour, you're toting down the road and. Uh, Expensive golf cart, but you're not driving. <laughs> <laughs> so true. The future. It's amazing. Well, it gentlemen, we have, uh, I think, 51 weeks to find out how good we were with our predictions. <laughs> yeah, yep. and I think it's going to be an amazing time for our show, too. I think uh, uh, to our listeners, we'll have yeah, some we, great surprises ahead. Surprises, that's the word, right. Yeah, <laughs> great surprises. And, and we really, really enjoy you coming along for the journey. Everybody that's listening and your continuous support, the tipping. Uh, I, we haven't gotten the latest update from Mike, but... Uh, we we feel every satachi that you feel to send us, and we appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you and we'll see, speak again next week. Take see care. you next year. Yep. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Winner.